You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hey, everybody. It's Saturday night. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan, and you are? I'm still Krista Bontrager. Also known as Theology Mom. Yep. This is the show where we talk about all things related to God, life, and the Bible. We're just a couple of gals graduated from Biola trying to figure out our way in the world. That's true. Can you talk so, more in your mic when you there? Oh. I'm, I need to talk more in my mic. I don't know. Can you all hear me out there? <laughs> Hi. And all helping right. us on the show, giving us microphone directions and telling us when our mics are hot during the opening is Bob. Official button hey, pusher. And there's Abby in the Abby background. in the background? She's studying for finals. So she's got AP U.S. history on the brain tonight. There it is. And we want to encourage all of you to uh, help us out by sharing the show. That's a really practical way to help support the show is just hit that share button. Hit that share button. And if you're watching um, and you're on YouTube, let us know where you're where you're watching from. Say hello. Yes. We and- see Cynthia Hampton and Laura Hartley. Hello. And hello. we want to say thanks to Cynthia for sharing, sharing the, show. the show. Yay. Yay. awesome yes all right now yes two weeks ago and last week we announced that we were going to do a family 210 drawing live on the show that's right because family 210 is our family uh clothing sponsor and uh so we asked people to share the show yes and then send us a screen cap now i know that people shared the show i saw people sharing the show i know but not a lot of you Sent the screen cap. Nope. Nope. <laughs> but one person did, and that one person will be getting a Family 210 t-shirt. That's right. Do you know who that one person is? I think I do. Are you going to say? Are you sure? I don't know. Maybe you should say. No, I think you should say. Laura Hartley out <laughs> in... Wiley, Texas. Yes, Wiley, Texas. I didn't know where I was going to say she was in Waco. She's not in Waco. She's in Wiley, Texas. Yes. And she is. Congratulations, Laura. Yes. Yes. You are the big winner. She won at Fair and Square, people. She's the one who sent in the screen cap. So... Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she's happy yes. so she gets the shirt of her choice uh from the family 210 store yeah awesome yes. congratulations yes all right and then last week last week last week was a good show yeah it was a good show we talked about the jude 3 project and their new curriculum that came out yeah um it's a small group study it is okay like we said we liked about well, I said I liked about 80% of it. Yeah. Um, I think there was... I think I liked 90%. This is some, is, okay, like, it, it was, was a good. high number. Yeah, yeah. yeah. good. Um, there were some things to watch out for. Yeah. Um, James Cone and other people that platform some liberation criti- theology and critical race theory. Yeah. And so we said, be careful about that. But um, didn't have a lot of... Overall, yeah. it, was, it was there was Anything a lot of to say? praiseworthy things there. Um, we also talked about some crazy Bible interpretation. ba 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 that oh that's my favorite i like that one monique's been yes. saying that all week yeah bah, 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 bah. so if you missed that show make sure to catch it either on google play spotify apple podcast yes or on our youtube stream that's right and we do want to invite all of you to join us on the chat we try to t- check facebook it's a little bit more clunky to check facebook during the show 
but definitely in the YouTube chat box. If you want to pop over to YouTube, we'd love to have your voice uh, in on the conversation. And so what did you do this week? How was your week? You know, I'm asking you for once. I was like, I've set a goal tonight. I'm going to ask Monique how her week she was. She beat me to the punch, you guys. I'm um, so bad about okay. it. Okay. So this week, woo, this week was a whirlwind. I know. I don't know how deep to get into it, but I will say. Um, maybe say what you did last Sunday or maybe say Sunday, what we did yesterday. I don't know what we did yesterday. We made a uh, trip down to... Oh, yes. <laughs> I was like, people, my weeks are busy. Okay, so last Sunday, um, the organization that I work with, yeah, back in July, I had a crazy idea that around Christmas time, kids should get Christmas toys. And You work at a resource center I, I work for, at a resource center low income, for low income, yes. homeless people. Mm-hmm. Um, low income and or right. homeless. Um, and just started... Uh, a crazy idea, a sign-up sheet and registration and ended up with 400, about 400 kids registered, um, want their parents actually, saying that they wouldn't be able to, to afford Christmas toys this year. And so... It, you got uh, toys for tots We had toys to deliver. for tots deliver. You can't imagine how the truck yes, blew up in the building. Like, yes, there were so many toys. People's generosity was unbelievable. Between um, toys for tots and... Different organizations that help sponsor us within the community. I would easily say that there were probably somewhere between eleven and twelve hundred toys donated. The best we, was the scary doll corner. That yeah, where you had like the porcelain dolls and the babies are live and they're like, ah, I can't even. I don't like those dolls. We really should have had the video that you yeah, shot. <laughs> it was a mess. Um, but yes, that was last Sunday. We did a, a nice event. For the kids and the parents, community. parents got to come in and shop, so to speak. They had gift wrapping. They were able to gift wrap their toys. Kids had a bounce house and hot chocolate and arts and crafts. And the community just really came together to help support those in need. And so yeah. it was a really nice event. And we uh, really had no idea how large of an event this was until we came to bring Monique lunch. And- I appreciate that lunch. <laughs> Because I was hungry. There were hundreds of people there. We were like, oh, oh my, this is this is really a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> you had really organized something there. So, yeah. yeah. A big thank you to all of our volunteers because it takes a ton of volunteers. I think we had 60 to 70 volunteers between all of the prep work and the day of event and things that are happening after the event and making sure that any child who didn't, you know, wasn't able to come still gets their toys. A lot, a lot of work, but um, definitely worth it and worth it to see the smiles on the parents' faces and the kids' faces. So that was, that was Sunday. All right. And the rest of my week. Yes. And then yesterday we went down to Biola, hung out for a little bit, um, got to meet with the Dean of Talbot, Monique has big plans, people. Yeah, she has big plans. Yes, she has really stumbled into something. I don't know if I have like big plans or if you know I'm just kind of yeah. tiptoeing into water that I think the Lord could be leading me into. I'm not sure, um, we'll, but we'll keep everyone posted. We will keep you posted. Yes, the Dean of Talbot, Dr. Clint Arnold. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, right. we'll, it was, we'll leave him in suspense. It right was there. really interesting. Yeah. yeah, it was good. All right, so let's do the show rundown. Awesome. Um, what are we doing? Okay. Well, first off, uh-huh. the Southern... Now, I'm going to mess it all up. You guys, I am saved. 
But when it comes to Christian definitions and terms, I don't know all that stuff. So the SBC, that's not the SBCA, SPCC, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, back in June, June of this year, did a resolution for an article, Article Nine, which they accepted, and that was the acceptance of critical race theory within as a framework within or an adequate. They call it or consider it an analytical tool within their denomination. So the acceptance of critical race theory within their denomination. Right. And, and the, there's been. And not just their denomination, the churches, but also the seminaries, you, you know. And so mm-hmm. it's. Yeah, please explain all It's of that. very um, wide. So we're just doing the rundown, but we'll get into all the details. But we're going to look at the new documentary that just came out a couple weeks ago about yes. this. So there was the. Acceptance of Article 9, and then there was a little preview snippet to a larger documentary about the acceptance of Article 9. Yeah. Uh, Right? Yeah. So we're going to talk about the documentary. We're going to talk about the adoption of critical race theory into the Southern Baptist Convention, some of the implications. That's going to be kind of the top of the show. That'll be the top, but what that brings me to is the larger topic of culture and Christianity yes, and how the church, and maybe I'm wrong, but how the church at times adopts culture and allows for culture to dictate the movement within Christianity, as opposed to us being a a force and a stand against culture. And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, you guys think differently, chime in and let us know, but I, I think that's more of the concern. It's like, you know, yes, this is just one of the things. Like, they've they've accepted critical race theory or critical theory. and But what else do we accept and how else do we see that play out in the church? I can tell Monique's really excited about the topic because she's already going into the topic. We're just doing the rundown. But you, she's ready. you know what? You know what? <laughs> Hi. I'll just sit here and, you know. All right. So a couple of days ago in other news, I uh, posted an article on my public Facebook page um, that was – really an amazing summary of my experience in the reformed tradition. And I've talked a few times vaguely on the show about that. Uh, but then I got a bunch of private messages, which almost never happens as a result of the post where people wanted to know why I left the reformed tradition. And I don't get people asking me that very often, but since a number of people private messaged me about it. I thought I would talk about it a little bit and uh, as sort of a follow-up to that post. And then we're also going to have the tweet of, of the, the week, week yes. which is always a fun surprise for me. Yes, it it always <laughs> is because I never quite know what the opening's going to be, what yeah. the tweet's going to be. And by the time I do find out, I am just surprised. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Now we should probably tell people, we really try hard and intentionally not to make this the race show. Yes, we do. We really do. <laughs> we we don't sit up on like Thursday and say, hey, how can we talk about race again? again? <laughs> no. But the, <laughs> but the race topics just sort of find us. I know. And I feel like it's either an email or yeah. some kind of message on messenger yeah. something have you guys thought about or yeah. like can conversations you, in the can week you comment on this yes and i want to say like no but then somebody also say oh have you thought about this and i'm like man 
Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I had a good conversation with um our good friend Amanda Whaley this week and it just like authentically came up and I was like, oh, okay. Here it here is again. Get, yeah, here it is. And people have questions. And so I think that having a safe space to ask questions is good. Yeah. But to your point, no, we don't go out and like search the dark web looking for <laughs> race, race conversations and race topics every week. We were, I don't even, yeah, the dark web is... Well, all of the internet is the dark web to me. I don't know <laughs> what else. I mean, Twitter is the dark web. Yes. Yes. So the thing uh, I think you bring up, though, is I, I think that maybe why this keeps coming up is that it is so authentically just out there in our culture. Mm-hmm. And um, since that's sort of like the big topic of tonight is Christianity and culture. And, and we should probably say at the outset, like, you and I still have a ton of things that we're trying to figure out mm-hmm. about the relationship between the church and culture. Yeah. And like, this is not the show where we're going to unpack all of that and the great mysteries of things, but the church has throughout its history had a struggle with its relationship to culture. Oh, and, I can believe that, you know, is birthed in an, uh, under a government that didn't want Christianity. And for the first 300 years, it wasn't even a legal religion. It, it wasn't something um, that people could practice out in the open. And there was a lot of opposition to it. And then you get into a period under Constantine and following that where Christianity is adopted sort of as a national religion and the church and the government get all kind of mixed up together. And then you have the Reformation period and after that, where we're sort of floating in Judeo-Christian values as a culture that sort of reflect the church, but the church and culture become, the church and government are become separate entities. Now we're in a situation of a post-Christian culture where it's almost like the hostility toward the Christian mm-hmm. um, church is almost circling back to where it was before Constantine. And so it's, we struggle as Christians with knowing what is our relationship to the culture. Yes. I don't know all of that history. Oh, but um, I just did like, you know, there's a little survey there. But one of my concerns and one of the things that have, has concerned me for a while is our relationship to present day culture. And it often feels like in my experience being in church, like, Oh, we're not talking about what's happening out there in the real world. Yeah. Do we not know? And it doesn't mean that we need to adopt, but are we aware of the conversations that happen Monday to Saturday and even on Sundays and, you know, in some circles and how that impacts the congregants that then come to church on Sunday. And that's one of the reasons why we started this show in the first place was because you and I were having conversations and, and you just kept saying, well, why is no one talking about this? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where's that show? Where's the show where people are talking about real life and, and the struggles of being a Christian in this culture. And that sort of why our tagline is, this is a show where we talk about God, Bible and real life because it's not always easy to know our place mm-hmm. as Christians. And 
are we doing a good job of that? And I remember when we first started talking about critical theory and critical race theory and all that stuff, I said, man, this, this just seems like it's so new. Like it, it just came out of nowhere after the 2016 election. And you're like, where have you been? Are you, no. are you new? No. Like, you're like, no. I was talking about these things 20 years ago at Biola and, yeah. and they've been around for 20 plus years prior to that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? And yeah. so it was, it, this is all for those of us who haven't been paying attention. It just felt like it all came out of the blue. Now it all makes sense to me now that I've looked at it. It's just the natural extension of postmodernism. But in the beginning, I was like, I don't understand any of this. Did you just do the Blake Shelton from the voice finger? Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. There's that, folks. Okay, so let's get into it, right? Yeah. All right, because we're already halfway into it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Southern Baptist Convention yeah. does this big vote. I guess it's their national convention back yeah. in June. It's the largest um, Protestant denomination in, in the America. Co- in the country. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, or, we should you know. we should make it clear, like the Southern Baptist Convention has roots that go back to the Civil War. Yes. And there's a reason why they're called the Southern, Southern. Baptists. Yes, because the Northern Baptists, or I guess the regular Baptists, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you want to define them, um, they were against slavery. Yeah. And they were more in the movement of the abolition of slavery. Yeah. And so the Southern Baptists, good old people in the South, in the South were for slavery. Yeah. And then there was, was a break a, off. Yeah. And, and I actually have a video on my YouTube channel about this and chronicling one of the prominent Southern Baptist seminaries and it's it's publicly racist roots Mm -hmm. that the four of the key founders were all members of the kkk like this isn't some exaggeration or historical redaction like this is it's just just known let's just yeah call a thing a thing yeah look at history for what it is Mm -hmm. but in 1995 the southern baptist convention uh passed a resolution back then kind of repudiating and trying to distance themselves from their racist roots. But for many people, there was a sense of dissatisfaction with that. They felt like there really wasn't enough that was happening in terms of, maybe we could call, I hate I hate to use this word because it, it has a particular meaning, but I can't think of a different word as equity of leadership. Hmm. Um, that so they weren't seeing enough leadership, enough diverse leadership across the board. A, a is that qualified what you're diverse leadership, mm-hmm. yeah. And so now we're in a situation where some of the Southern Baptist seminaries, um, Southeastern Baptist in particular, is really kind of advocating for aspects of critical race theory and. So that led to the events in June with the passage of Resolution 9, which I think Bob has a uh, screen of the resolution. If people want to check it out, I'll put it in the show notes. But um, the question of how, what is our relationship to critical race theory and intersectionality and intersectionality, maybe you could give a brief definition of what that is. So intersectionality looks directly at oppression and how many different ways a person could potentially be oppressed. So 
women would be oppressed to men. But because I am a black woman, the place where my womanhood and my African Americanness or my blackness meets would be an intersection. Okay. Does that make sense? So you um, would be in a more oppressed category than I would because you would be a white woman. Right. Yes. Um But if you were a black if you were a black female and a lesbian, you would have even I would have two intersections. You, so I would okay. have or three, however you want to yeah. look at it. But if okay. you were a white woman who is a lesbian, you would have one intersection because you it you're this is where your oppression intersects, your okay. womanhood and your lesbianism. Okay. So that's what that means. So in particular, um, the line of debate is um, this line number two, whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. And intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap to inform one's experience. Mm -hmm. This line is really the genesis in large part to this new documentary that just came out a couple weeks ago. It's called by what standard. Yes. And it is put out by a group within the Southern Baptist convention. I, I call them the dissenters. Mm -hmm. Um, it's called founders ministries and they are trying to push back on the infiltration of social justice, critical theory, critical race theory, uh, feminism, and, and all of those connected ideas mm -hmm. um, in saying, no, these are not just analytical tools. This is actually a framework uh, and a worldview. Yeah. And they're pushing back specifically um, against critical theory, the umbrella that houses things like feminist theory, queer theory, um, and critical race theory. And, and I think a lot of people would probably be like, man, this is so academic. Like, why? how does this pertain to me? But this is really going to pertain to a whole lot of people in about five years when you have a slew of graduates coming into hundreds or thousands of Southern Baptist churches that have been educated in these seminaries where critical theory is being taught. Yeah. And that is going to start trickling down to the pews. I mean, I see that now. I, I think I told everybody about a graduation I went to earlier this year and seeing um, people who were proponents of critical race theory at that graduation and just what that means as a young person coming into the church and yeah. wanting to come into leadership and, you know, housing these ideas and this framework. But um, I think we have a clip that yeah. we're going to go to. So we're going to, this is the opening scene from the documentary and all of our apologies to the filmmakers. We hope you know that we're, we're just playing this um, because we want to give you guys some promotion yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, not try to steal your content. We want to encourage people go watch the whole documentary. Yes, it, please do. It's highly informative. Yeah. So this is just the opening scene. And just to set the stage here that you're going to see three gentlemen sitting at a table. The guy on the left is a Christian. The two guys on the right are agnostics mm -hmm. or atheists. Uh, they are what they would characterize themselves as liberal progressives. Mm -hmm. But they do not buy into critical theory. Yes, Peter Bogosian is the one sitting on the far right. And he just wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal 
maybe three weeks ago. That we tried to talk about on the show last week, but thank you, Wall Street Journal, for hiding all your articles behind a a registration wall. Um, But it... (laughs) He, he really talks about how um, academia is becoming um, just swayed by critical race theory, and there's really no real room to to come against it or to stand against it. Yeah. So, all right. Okay. I have had in the back of my mind that if this were at the height of the new atheist movement, and when you know we were extremely involved in that. If I wanted a plan, if I were going to design a plan <laughs> to bring, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, I know <laughs> where you're going. To bring the whole thing down, the whole all of Christianity. Let's end Christianity. <laughs> how Christian do we do it? Yeah, how would you do it? Make them woke. Yep. So it'll eat itself from the inside. Yep. And then I'd be. I'm not the old guard atheist I, refer, I, I alluded to earlier. But if I were the old school angry atheist, it's like let's just throw rocks at the cathedral till it falls down. I'd start making woke pastors and sending them in. Because they're going to tear everything apart. Yeah. Because they're going to make everything about identity. It's inevitable. And that's all they talk about. That got our attention. Yes, that was. <laughs> that got our attention. Because we had watched another documentary with these two gentlemen um, the night before. And uh, talking about their project, which would be a whole other great video to do sometime. But it got our attention like, Wow. They're, they even see the danger if of the this. The atheist can yeah. see the danger of accepting this worldview within the church and how catastrophic and destructive it is. And how against historic Christianity it is. Like, oh, if you want to destroy the church, you don't need to throw rocks at a cathedral or burn it to the ground. You just need to get, get in. Your pastor's woke. Yeah. But we can't see it. Yeah. Oh, no. Do you want to go right to the next clip or do you no, want to? We can unpack this one a okay. little bit more. I want to hear your thoughts about it because that just got my attention big time. Well, again, this brings me to Christianity and culture and how and I may be I may sound a little harsh. I'm going to put that out there at the the outset. And you've you know brought me correction on this and um, and offered, you know, me some guidance and been like, hey, slow down, slow down. It's not like the whole church or, you know, watch your language. And I'm still struggling because, and I'm just going to be honest, folks. For me, it feels like the church is is not talking or not up on game with what's happening in culture. Yeah. And because we're not understanding the movement of culture, then we accept anything that may sound good. So this, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if you're giving me the look and and you guys feel free to chime in No, go. and like, I'm, I'm open to hearing it, but it sounds like, or not even, but, and it's it, for me, it, it feels like, you know, we're not having these conversations, race or gender or, you know, other things. And so the world sees the need. The world sees the hurt, they see injustice, they see however you want to define it, and then they begin to have these conversations and say, hey, you guys aren't talking about this, you need to adopt this. But what if we had a heartbeat on culture as well? And it doesn't mean that we need to adopt culture by any means, but if we understood more of what was happening, if we were if maybe we're a little least, bit more outward, fo- not, I don't know. I'm- I think that what you're highlighting is that... In the church, we have a tendency to just talk about certain topics. And I think that part of the reason that critical race theory has made 
such inroads into so many formerly conservative or still conservative on paper uh, churches and seminaries is because it offers a way to live out your faith in a very tangible framework. It's like, okay, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to just sit in my church. I want to like go out and show the world love. I want to go out and make a difference and show that Christianity really makes a difference. But there hasn't been a lot of that happening. There's a tendency in the church that we form our own kind of parallel culture and we get in our little ghetto mindset of, you know, we're just going to talk to mostly to each other Mm -hmm. and we don't pay attention to the larger consequences of the ideas that are happening in the world around us. And by and large, Christians usually come along to the culture conversation a bit late. And so meanwhile, the culture is having discussions about, hey, we're noticing these marginalized people. And hey, we know that there's needs here. And hey, we're, we want to do some things. And then the church is left behind because the perception is we're not doing anything. And so I think that's kind of what you're saying. Yes. And I mean, it brings me to the question of how do pastors shepherd people who are going out on the Monday through Saturday and and hearing these conversations and experiencing the life that happens at the workplace that may be infiltrated or infested with CRT and then coming back into church, how do we deal with that part? Like, how do I bring healing or hope or some kind of acknowledgement to the real experience that that person is experiencing in culture? Yeah. And sometimes there's a tendency, I think, for us as evangelicals to not tie our faith in to the real world and what is happening in culture. Mm -hmm. What are people talking about at work? One of the reasons I wanted to start this show in the first place was to, to kind of show people how theology comes to bear on real life, on all of these conversations we're having in, in the culture and that historic Christianity does have things to say. And, but I think that sometimes some churches get so caught up in how can we become like the culture? How can we sort of blend into the culture? Which I think that is a different error. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not interested. I do. Do people need to know about critical theory? Yes, they do. Christians need to understand some things about critical theory, but they need to do so so that we can reach people with the gospel by understanding how they think, yes. not so that we can become like them. Yes. that Those are two different reasons and motivations to understand critical theory. I don't want to become like the world. Yes. I want to tear down every framework and every construct that comes against the gospel and the most high God. But I have to know something about how these people think. Yes. And you highlight something that's really important because when you don't understand how people think or what at least a small basis is of the, their construct, then you're able to accept because it might sound good. 
Yeah. Because we want to love. And we'll talk about that later on. But we want to love. And so because we want to love, and this sounds warm and fuzzy at the outset. Yeah. Then, oh, yeah, we we should probably accept this. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the second clip here. And we thought that this offered a really good kind of overview, historical overview of where critical theory comes from. Yes. And it's a little bit of an extended clip, but this guy gives a very nice little history lesson. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's watch this about the origin of critical theory. And what's going on. We've got to start with Marx. Okay. Karl Marx believed that the world, everything in the world was just matter and energy. He was a materialist. Um, everything is physical. And as a result, he saw all of history moving forward in terms of one economic system being replaced by another. And basically everything was determined by the economic system. The politics, the religion, the ideology, everything was there to preserve a particular economic system. Now, he predicted that there would be a proletariat revolution, a revolution of the urban workers. It didn't happen. So you get an Italian communist named Gramsci in the uh, early to mid 20th century who looked at the reason why. And his conclusion was that the problem really lay in what he called the hegemony. That is to say, essentially, the worldview or the ideology that the bourgeoisie, the propertied classes, promoted. He said the problem is the proletariat bought into the hegemony. And so what we need to do is to create what he called a counter-hegemony. The idea here being that we're going to come up with a new ideology, a new worldview. This will be done through a combination of the intellectuals and the workers that will give them an alternative way of seeing the world and help them realize the fact that they're really oppressed. Further, he extended it beyond just economics. And this is particularly what's going to happen in much more uh, detail after Gramsci with uh, the Frankfurt School and, and uh, other thinkers. They're going to argue that oppression isn't just economic. It's not just owners versus workers the way it was in Marx. It's all kinds of other forms of oppression. And so the world divides up in Marx, the world divides up between owners and workers, which correspond to oppressors and oppressed. In these new worldviews that are emerging out of critical theory, oppressors and oppressed go way beyond just owners and workers. It's racial oppression. It's um, sexism. It's homophobia. It's transphobia. It's Islamophobia. It's fill in the blank phobia. It's all of these things. So they're constantly looking to find new oppressed classes to join in their vision of a better world brought about by bringing down the oppressors and theoretically at least raising up the oppressed. And critical theory is really built around an analysis of society that says that everything is really revolves around power structures. And the power structures are there to keep the oppressors in place and to keep the oppressed in their place. There are a lot of other ideas that tie into this. There's a, they think of everything in terms of a zero-sum game. The reason why racism exists is because whites take power from people of color. The reason why sexism exists is that men take power from women. 
it's a zero-sum game. There's always, in order for one person to move forward or one group to move forward, they have to oppress, take power away from someone else. So it's all a power game, and it all really builds around politics, it builds around language, uh, and a whole host of related issues that fundamentally come back down to the idea that matter and energy is all that exists. It's all materialism. Um, and everything that we think we know about the world is conditioned by our culture. It's conditioned by the hegemony. So if you can control the hegemony, you can control what people, how people understand the world, and you can literally change reality. All of that is wrapped up in critical theory. Well, oh, we cut off his last line, but his, his last line, or somewhere in the video, he says, but this has only been around for 60 years. Yes. <laughs> and so Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. And I think that I'm always a skeptic of a new paradigm or somebody has a new theology or a new framework or a new way of seeing things. Mm -hmm. And then they want to bring it into Christianity. I'm like, look, my job is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints those things that are all agreed upon among us. My job is not to incorporate every newfangled sociological idea into the church. Or 20 years ago in the 90s, it was we were incorporating marketing and business ideas into the church to, for church growth programs. Um, that's not my concern. My concern is to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I want to contend for the faith of the apostles and the martyrs. I want to contend for that faith. If there's a framework that came about 60 years ago, that's interesting. I want to know about it because right now that's the water that my children are swimming in. That's the water of the culture that, you know, that they're swimming in and they don't even realize they're swimming in it. That's the messages that are coming through all the media and all the education, all the books, all the conversations on social media. It's all coming through that filter, that worldview, that lens. And I want to know about it, but I'm not going to rush to bring it into the church. Yes. I need to keep these worlds separate. Um, and that summary and it shows how complicated critical theory really is. Yes. And also, one of the things that I liked that he said at the end was how it's connected to so many other things. It's all the phobias. If you accept this one view, then you're um, just naturally accepting this other view. One of the things that that you brought up a couple of days ago or a week ago or so um, about our talk at WIA and explaining exactly how critical... Women in apologetics. Yeah. Yes, hello, I'm wearing my shirt, women in apologetics, sorry. <laughs> Please excuse the, there we go. There it um, is. <laughs> the break. Um, but one of the things that, that you mentioned is like, is critical theory is like a train. And so when you have critical theory as That's the like, driving engine, yeah. right behind it, you have critical race theory. Right behind that, hooked together in the next car is feminist theory. Hooked in the next car would be queer theory. Queer theory. And then in the next car There's is. There's other cars coming. There, yes. And what we, we, I didn't want to talk about because I don't know enough about it, but fat studies and fat and activism. Is, yes, is another version 
in this critical theory vein. So it's just another car. They're all hooked together. And you can't say that I accept this one because I like what it does, but I don't accept this one because I may not be for LGBTQ theory. Right. And this is the conundrum that the Southern Baptists are getting into because they want to accept critical race theory. Like, okay, yeah, we want to have race conversations and that's good, but they want to reject feminist theory and queer theory. But at the end of the video on by what standard is the video documentary that we're talking about tonight, um, they, the, the filmmakers show how feminism and queer theory are already coming into the Southern Baptist convention. Yes. And people don't understand these, these are, these are cars that are all hooked together. And you had the analogy of the mouse. Yes. Yes. So the mouse. (laughs) So I don't know why I know this, but (laughs) like if a mouse can get his nose through the tip of any opening, he's able to like wiggle his body all the way through the other parts. And that's kind of how I see critical theory and all of the other subsequent cars. If one part is able to sneak through, all of the rest of it is going to come through too. But again, in looking at under the banner of equity, yes, everything is about equity. This you have to understand that our culture is now in a conversation where the highest good, the highest moral good is that of equity and justice. And so when they say, well, we don't, we don't want you to impose your morality on us. They're not saying that they have no morality. They're just saying they have a different standard of morality. Hmm. And that that is what they are going to say. Here is what is good, true and beautiful. Their version of equity. But that train is eventually going to get into feminism and queer theory and conversations about equity, because if there's no room for, you know, this group of oppressed people or victims, then there's no room for this group and this group and this group. And along that train goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is why it's important that we understand what's happening in culture. We don't have to accept what's happening in culture. And in my opinion, we should be a voice against it and we should be leading a different way. We should have our own train. Yes. And we should be on a different train to show culture. This is how we do it. This is what really works because in the end, this isn't going to work. This is a framework that's not going to work. Let's just be clear. Because it gets people just pitted against each other. Yes. And silencing each other. If you don't, if you don't get into the, there's only one view that's allowed. Yeah. There's only one outcome that's allowed. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get in line with that, you will be silenced. Yes. Cancel culture. Yeah. But In not understanding that, like I said earlier, we will accept or we will dabble in. And this, people, is not something that we can dabble in. We cannot. I think my grandmother used to say, like, you don't give don't give the devil a pinky because he'll have you up to your elbow. (laughs) This is one of those things. You cannot dabble in this and think that you won't be swallowed whole by all of the other parts that come with it. I think that. Um. It's hard because technically, um, and I think Neil Shenvey made a really good case for this um, in his response to Resolution 9 that was passed by the Southern Baptists in June. He says, you know, technically you could call critical theory an analytical tool, but that's really not how most people use, use it. it. Mm-hmm. They Most people use it as a theoretical framework or as a worldview, whatever term you want to call that. And so while this is 
technically on paper accurate that they can they can just sort of use it in this limited kind of a way. Nobody uses it that way. Yes. And that is the real conundrum. Uh, we yeah, go ahead. I was going to say no one uses it that way to the extent that if you don't see it this way, you will be fired. Yes. If you don't see it this way, then you are standing against the gospel. This is not just like, oh, let me, you know, let me put on my glasses because I can't see far away. No, this is the glasses that change everything. It, it, I'm standing against God and against the gospel. So basically what they're saying is that their analytical tool tells me that I am wrong in my definition of gospel and my definition of, of my, my life experience and my service to God, so to speak. But how, how do you, how does an analytical tool do that? No, that would be more of a framework or an ideology. Yeah. Unless I'm wrong. No. And I think that it's important for people to understand that, that then the outcome of using this so-called analytical tool of critical theory, you have to then, if you're going to import it into Christianity, you have to start having different conversations about redefining critical doctrines, doctrines like the original sin of repentance, forgiveness, um, the gospel itself. (laughs) And so they can say on paper I affirm inerrancy, I affirm all the historic doctrines of Christianity, but then they've got this framework that they want to put on it, and we already see these redefinitions trying to happen at the seminary level, and regular people need to care about this because woke theology is coming to a church near you. Yeah. And if you are on an elder board, if you are in church leadership, you need to know about these things so that... When a pastor comes to candidate at your church, you can recognize this. You can ask questions in the interview. What do you think about social justice? What do you think about woke theology? Mm -hmm. These are the questions people are going to have to start asking in job interviews when you're interviewing a new youth pastor, a new senior pastor, when you're having conversations about who's going to serve on the elder board because where leadership goes, the local church goes. Yes. Um, Let's get to the 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 third third clip. clip. So finally, we're going to see here Vody Bauckham, who is, has a PhD from Oxford. Uh, I think it might be in philosophy or religion. He is an amazingly brilliant Mm -hmm. mind. I don't agree with Vody on every jot and tittle of what he says, but boy, I sure agree with a lot of it. And, um, he actually is a Dean of a seminary in Zambia, in in Zambia. Yeah. He and his family are missionaries in Zambia. So let's check out this clip, uh, from Vody Bauckham that talks about, um, why, what has made so many Christians open to adopting critical race theory, or at least aspects of it. Let's check it out. It it gives us virtually no hope. Here's what's ironic. What's ironic is the the reason that many in the church that that I speak to are willing to let down the guard and welcome this stuff in is because of their love for their brothers. You've got a lot of people who look at ethnic minorities and say, I love you. I get you. Let me hear you, Mm -hmm. you know? And I say it's ironic because the accusation is 
you, you, you don't love, you don't know, you don't understand, you don't listen, you don't, and you've got guys who are actually opening the door uh, to a worldview that is foreign and that is hostile because of the desire to hear and give the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. And here's the irony. Right now, seminaries who really want to see um, minorities brought in, here's the dilemma they face. If we bring one in who's one of us in terms of theology, mm -hmm. worldview, so on and so forth, the accusation will be tokenism. That's right. He's not really black. That's right. Because critical theory is not part That's of what right. he's bringing. And then if we bring one in with critical theory, <laughs> we're bringing someone in who's not part of what we're committed to delivering and communicating, right? Those things most certainly believed among us. So it, it, it's really a catch-22. Mm -hmm. And then if you do bring someone in and you, you know, critical theory starts to rear its head, well, what do you do? Do you get rid of them? Because now you're the racist That's right. who wouldn't let them have their voice. There are certain white pastors. Okay. All right. We haven't gone to the comments. Um, yeah. Let's, let's do that. Let's see. We'll look at. Let's see here. Kimba says, in my opinion, it's meant to silence people as well as divide them so the powers that be can use them for their own ends. Um, I do think that CRT is a means of silencing people. Um, I'm not really sure what you mean by use them to their own ends, but I can say that what I see like in different um, social media groups and things like that, or even in council culture the the goal of a lot of it is to silence the oppressors so to speak silence those with power silence anyone who disagrees with you and may not you know be on the train so to speak yeah and i think that there's a there's an aspect of it there's a different part of the video that we're not playing the clip tonight but the idea of power and those who are in power that one of the key components of critical theory is to redistribute power mm -hmm. Um, and that could come through redistribution of wealth, which is connected to its Marxist roots. Mm -hmm. But really, the primary um, exercise is about redistributing power. Yes. And um, how you get there is very interesting. But that that is a key component of an outcome. And, and that is brought out in, in the documentary as well. But what do you think about what Vody says here, Monique? Because I was really struck by his insight that a lot of, I think he didn't say this explicitly, but I think he's talking about white people. Like what makes white people so vulnerable to adopting aspects of critical race theory? I think it's because many Christians genuinely want to know how to love their family and friends who are people of color. They want to know how to do that. And this framework comes along and says, here's how you do it. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a biblical way of doing it, but this offers some tangible hands and feet of here's some steps that you can do. Yes. And I, I think that it, there, there was a vacuum created because we weren't having these conversations in the church. And so then critical race theory just has come in now and said, okay, here's some steps. Mm -hmm. Here's what you do. Mm -hmm. And here's what you don't do. And if you do this and don't do this, we will cancel you. Yeah. To me, what just pops in my head is just love your neighbor as yourself. You know what? 
I think sometimes we can make it so difficult. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't things that make us different. We have different skin tones. We have different hair. What? We like, like there's things that are different about us, but that's what I was saying about how does a pastor shepherd his congregation? Because it's when I, when I come back into the church from being in the world, those other six days, then I'm like, Hey, wow, I'm, I'm getting, you're loving me. Like you love yourself. Like you're not, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but there, there's a genuine, a genuine love there. Like you're not going to ask me a question that you wouldn't yourself want to be asked. You're not going to do something to me that you wouldn't want done to yourself. Um, the way that you do ask questions or inquire about things like my hair for, so to speak, would be in a way that would be gentle and respectful and not anything that would be harmful to you. And, yeah. and we're open to conversation if it is harmful. You know what I mean? Like and we, we allow, love each other. We, we allow, allow for mistakes. Yes, we, we have grace. Yes. There's forgiveness. all of that. Yeah. But, but when, it, when we bring in the world's culture, yeah, there's none of that. And instead, what you get is there's no forgiveness in this theory because you're my oppressor <laughs> and I have no need to go to coffee with you or desire her. Like, that's what this boils down to. This this framework boils down to. I am oppressed and you are my oppressor. Accept it. Acknowledge it. You should be repentant and continually repenting. And I need to, I don't know, hold it over you, so to speak. But I see such potential here. Monique and I are just starting these conversations in the last week of how do you turn this into a good, like, how do you turn this into an actual evangelism strategy? Because a year or two from now, these young people in their 20s are going to be emotionally exhausted because this paradigm doesn't actually lead to utopia. Yeah. It's not that train. You get on this train and it just leads to anger, division, striving, striving. It's never enough. And there's no redemption. There's no permanency of redemption. There's no forgiveness and equity that this, this grand goal of equity, you can never actually get there. I'm wondering, I feel so sad for these young people in college right now in their 20s because they think they're buying into this great system of salvation, that this great worldview that's an alternative to their parents' faith. And it's going to lead them to this emotionally broken place. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, how do we turn that into an evangelism opportunity? How do we turn that into, let me tell you about the water that never dies, you know, yeah. that never runs out. Or how, how, how do you turn this into unity? Yeah. Because this road is not going to lead us to unity. Yeah. Annette says, um, in rural and small town Ohio, I haven't noticed anything like that. I tend to go to small churches where we tend to stick with the Bible. And Annette, that's awesome. I think that is absolutely amazing. Um, what I can say about Ohio though, is that I know that this framework is deep into Ohio state university. And so be on the lookout. Um, I hope that it doesn't come to small town Ohio. But when you send your kids to college, this is the worldview that they will be taught from this is even in Christian colleges. Um, 
this is the framework, even in Christian colleges that they are getting. And so um, just know that you can avoid it to some degree, but this is what the emerging generation is getting. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty universal. Okay, now for the big question. Yeah. Should people use two hours of their life to watch this documentary? Yes. You think so? Yeah. Or, I mean, they could start at minute 37. <laughs> if you <laughs> if you don't want to see the other, you know, the other eight articles before article nine, I'd say start at minute 37. Um, it actually starts about 37 and 20 some seconds in. I say started. Oh, you know what? Actually, it's a, it's a little bit before 37. It's actually like, what did I say earlier? 29. 20, 29. 28, 29. Be safe. Start at minute 27 and then Go you'll forward. be there for about an hour. Yeah. Um, hour and a little more than an hour and a half. Yeah. About. Yeah. A little yeah. more. So I would definitely say. Go watch it. Watch it. Um, and then you'll get a better understanding of, you know, how it is creeping in. This is the largest evangelical denomination in our country. Yeah. And, and if they're and the- being plagued with it. I can't imagine what everybody else is. Going and to I've do. always perceived the Southern Baptists as being so conservative, but this has made uh, an inroads in a really big way in a really short amount of time. And the way that the Southern Baptist convention goes usually is a leader for other denominations. And we're already seeing the Presbyterian mm-hmm. church in America going down this path and other denominations that have been stalwarts of conservative Bible theology Um, but they're going down this path with much rapidity. And so just, just know that that's out there. Would you say that this is a fair and accurate, would you say this is a fair and accurate representation of critical theory, or is this more like a propaganda film that's designed to just scare people? This is it. This is, this is it. When, when they showed the trailer at first, the trailer uh, was, we did have some comments about the trailer. The trailer was very sensationalistic. Yeah. And it, it looked like it was going to be a propaganda film. Yeah. But this is, I feel like it's fair. Um, I think that even the more that I continue to learn about critical theory, critical, whatever theory, whatever you fill in the blank, um, I think that that it is a fair representation and the concerns put forward are very fair and valid. And then there's also snippets from different people who are proponents for critical race theory or critical theory. And um, those points of view we've talked about on the show. There are a couple of snippets in the in the film that we've shown on the show. So I think that they put forth a pretty balanced view and definitely a view of um, why it is so important that we stand out and speak out against it. Maybe say where they can watch it. Where, where do you Yeah. So again, it? you can get it. I'll put it in the show notes, but if you just Google uh, by what standard documentary mm-hmm. and you go on the founders ministries website, there it is. And again, these are, I call them dissenters in the Southern Baptist convention. The main person behind the documentary is a pastor named Tom Askell. And sadly and unfortunately, just this last Sunday, he collapsed while preaching in his church and is in intensive care still, as I checked today. Um, But uh, hopefully, Lord willing, he will recover because he has been a big voice of speaking out against this error and kind of leading that charge and encouraging others to go that direction. Our friend Susanna said that uh, this is a difficult topic for her to understand, but I can see this, how this can cause censorship, lack of freedom of speech and propaganda 
if you have a different world view. And I know that Susanna is more in a, a bit more of a mainline um, denomination. She's, she's in the United Methodist mm-hmm. denomination, but she's a student of scripture. She's a former student in my Bible class. And I know she loves the Lord and is really trying to wrestle with how progressive theology has come into her denomination mm. and, and trying to learn how to sort this all out. So I commend you, Susanna, for those, those efforts. Um, and it is hard. Uh, Kimba says, I can't stand watching the train wreck happening around the world. It is hard. It is emotional. I mean, there's some days that, um, Monique and I get sick of it. We'll, we'll wake up yeah. and we're like, no race conversations today. today. <laughs> we can't do it. Not it's, it's hard. It is very hard. And I asked Susanna a clarifying question. Is it, what's hard about it? Is it hard to understand? Is it emotionally hard? She says, it's just, it's hard to understand. I agree with you, Susanna. I think I've said this before on the show. I've spent 25 years of my life in academia and education. This is by far the hardest thing I have ever worked to understand. It has taken me 15 months to really start to get a grip on it. I feel like I'm starting just now starting to really be able to understand all the terms and what they mean and the framework and putting it all together. But it has taken me hundreds of hours of study to get to this point. And our hope is to help give you guys some shortcuts uh, so you don't have to go through the the pain and misery that, that we've gone through at times. But I agree with you, Susanna. It is a very hard concept to understand it is and i I think another reason that makes another thing that makes it hard is the definitions change yeah and things change to fit um well there's very very specific definitions mm -hmm. that's for sure yeah um okay our friend juad is here yay we were missing you i missed i don't oh there he is okay okay my feet took me a little while my feet needed to like reboost yes but Juwan, we're glad you're here. We were just talking about you this week and say, where has he been? So we are glad to see you here. He wants you to put your YouTube address in uh, the description. I don't know I if will. they allow us to post links on chat, but we will try. Yes. So we will we do will that. We will try. Um, it might block us. Juwan, so, we were just talking about you. Yes. Say we missed you. It's, and Kimba says... Um, it's not about the subjects for me. It's about issues being hijacked by evil people for their own evil purposes. Mm, Kimba, you know, I don't know that I agree with that 100%. I think that... I think there's a lot of a, well-meaning people. Yeah, that's kind of what where, where I'm at, too. Like, I think that each person is created in God's image, and the image of God in me wants to see certain things happen in the world because of who he's, who he is and who he has like made us all to be. Like we all have dignity, value and worth and those things are to be esteemed. And those, those are the things that we uphold and we uphold those because of the likeness of our father in us. And so when I see something like injustice, it immediately uh, strikes a little thing in me, not because I'm this awesome and amazing person, although Sometimes I think I am, but because of the father's design in me. And I think that's also the same for them. Like they they... want to affirm someone else's dignity, value and worth. They just have bought in to a system that is not historically Christian to be able to do that. I think it's really well said. And it, it, I like how Vody Bauckham said it, you know, that 
many of these people are motivated by love. They really want to know how to love their neighbor better. And I'm very hesitant to say that they're evil or they have evil motivations. I, I'm just, I, I think in many people in the church, these leaders that are buying into this, I think they probably want it for right reasons. They're just not going about it in a very good way. Um, our friend Jeremy, who I'm super glad is here, that he's mm-hmm. chiming in tonight, says about five years ago, I learned that some of my former Sunday school students got caught up in critical theory. It broke my heart, but it began me on a journey of trying to understand this worldview. That's awesome, Jeremy. I know that you are in in ministry and we uh, commend you in that as you are laboring uh, for the gospel and to bring truth to your students. Oh, look at that sweet comment he's making. Yes. Your ladies are part of God's answer to my prayer that God would raise up some people who would push back against critical theory. I will um, say, Kimba said, Mo, that's why they use issues. They use manipulators and abusers will get you in your emotions in order to control you. And this is why we must be versed in the word. This is exactly why. Because people will try to manipulate or control or whatever. I think the best stand to take, though, as Christians is to believe all things and hope all things that are good for our brothers and sisters. So I'm not going to take a stand that says, oh, this pastor, even though he is woke, is trying to lead me astray. My hope would be that he is trying to care for those who are people of color who may be experiencing injustice and oppression and however those things are defined. But um not that he would or she would intentionally be trying to lead me astray. Yeah. My my hope is that and my belief in my heart as another Christian brother and sister is that they really do want to do good. Yeah. So before I jump there into misuse and abuse, I'm going to stay within within, you know, the confines of like, hey, how how can I love them? How can, and how I, can we start a conversation? Yeah. How can I ask can I, yeah. strategic questions? How can I help them think about this? Yeah. yeah. Because yeah, just automatically assuming that that it's evil, misuse, abuse um, may shut down conversations that I'm really looking to have. So, but thanks for your comment. I really appreciate it. All right. Um, we've been talking about this a long time. A long time. I say it's time to move on. I don't know if that, that could be like a little song in my heart. Like, oh, moving do, on do, do, do. Moving on up. We need the Jefferson. Moving on up. Oh. <laughs> Y'all, I should not be singing ever. <laughs> Okay, we do want to make sure that all of our friends um, are going to be part of the Women in Apologetics Conference. Women in Apologetics is like my superhero. Yes. Because there is exactly one day left to get the early bird rate. So you need to go on their website and get connected. Um, And if you can't join us in person at Biola University in January, be sure to... um, (laughs) What? They're all. Oh, Monique. Am I? Hi. (laughs) Be sure to. uh, Hi. Our podcast viewers, our listeners, are like, "What's going on?" You Uh, know, I don't really know myself. But we are. uh, We have a big announcement that if you can't come to California to the conference in person, the live stream is now going to feature selected breakout sessions. So it's almost going to be like you're there. Yes. So it's going to be all the plenaries, the worship, and strategic. Oh, that's me again. Excuse me. 
Sorry. I'm, <laughs> excuse me. I'm trying to do the announcements here. Sorry. I, I'll step back. <laughs> I'll step back. Hi. Pardon so me. it's going to have this str- some me, strategic. Uh, Say that word again. Strategic. Strategic. <laughs> <laughs> we have officially gone off the cliff, folks. We have officially. All right. Okay, breakout so, sessions. We're going to be doing a breakout session we on are. critical race theory as How a did, worldview. Who guessed that that's what we'd be talking about? <laughs> yes. Laura Hartley says she's already registered. Yay. Yay, she's coming to the live stream. And let's just say Women in Apologetics is not just for women. Yes. Our ministry platforms women apologists, but content is open right. for everyone. Everybody. Yes. So um, and even our friend Juwad could sign up for the live stream. He's there in Great Britain. He could sign up and... Juwad's in Great Britain? How did I not know this? Yeah, I think he's in the UK. I think he told us that once. Oh, wow. Okay, I missed that part. So, yes, Jeremy, that, that goes for you too. Yeah. And so it's not just a lady conference. It's just that all the speakers are ladies. Yeah, it's yeah. a lady conference. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we usually get like five brave men that'll come <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. My husband will be there. Bob will be there. You can hang out with him. So, all right. Women in Apologetics. One day left to get the early bird rate. So go to women in apologetics. What is it? Dot com? Dot org? Mm-hmm. Women in apologetics. Dot com. Dot com. All right. Go there. Get signed up. It's so, it's such a cheap conference. It's like $45 or something. Mm-hmm. And the live stream is... So reasonable. So go get connected with that and you will not regret it. You're going to hear some amazing speakers. Do something there, right? Yeah, we got some dog and pony show that we'll be doing there on critical race so theory. Watch it on the live stream. If we get selected to be on the live stream. You're yeah. Gonna be, you're going to be selected though, right? I hope so. Okay. We're hoping. <laughs> Since I was the one pushing it. <laughs> we have something with puppets who's, who's, we'll do. Uh, who's going to select it? Who's going to make the... I don't know, the committee. Should we flash their phone number up on the screen? Yeah, we could do that. Yeah, we could start a social media campaign. People, let's keep things moving forward. All right. Thanks. All right, so I posted this article a couple of days ago on Facebook, and it was an anonymous article written about um, what he was... The author was calling spiritual abuse in Westminster Seminary, California. Not to be confused with Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and uh, there was an alumni who wrote this article. That his name is not Timothy Cho. That's a that's a pseudonym. Um, but I posted this on Facebook because I said this exactly describes my experience in being in United Reformed Churches in Southern California. We were in multiple churches in Southern California in the URC, where the pastors were all educated at Westminster Seminary in California. And this article exactly describes many of the reasons that my husband and I left the Reformed tradition after several years um, because of the, the culture. And I've tried to describe this over the years to people, and I've struggled because it, it just sounds so preposterous. Um, some of the, the dynamics that I would describe. And when I read this article this week, I was like, yes, I'm not crazy. This and this and this. And um, I showed it to a couple of my friends who were there at the same time as we were at the church. And they also agreed with me that this was an amazing description 
accurate description of our experience um, in a United Reformed Church in Southern California. Now, I can't speak for all United Reformed Churches everywhere on the planet, um, but what I know about United Reformed Churches here, at least in Southern California and with ministers who come out of Westminster, California, this article was just right on about the culture that that was created in a lot of these churches. And this is just one quote, but um, from the article, it says, there was a lot of talk about grace. And I would say the doctrines of grace, you know, the, the reformed are big into the doctrines of grace. There was a lot of talk about grace, but there was never a culture of grace. Oh my gosh. I need that like big, bold letters because that is the summary of everything that we experienced there. The high view of grace in that we learned when we were reformed, I mean, that was really what attracted us so much to becoming reformed was the doctrines of grace. But once you're in the churches, at least here in Southern California, the culture itself in the reformed tradition was so legalistic and it was not grace oriented at all. And um, it says pastoral abuse in the surrounding United Reformed Churches and Orthodox Presbyterian Church was covered up and hidden from view because these men were confessional. There was there was a view of the pastoral leadership that if they were the ones who um, were abusive and and in treating their congregants abusively. Uh, you were never allowed to criticize them. You were never allowed to even have a voice. And people who did try to speak up about this were either put under church discipline or told to leave. And it was just such a sad situation. And um, the 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 it was a it was a culture where the the doctrines itself were more exalted um, than actually how we treat people. So everything was about pursuing doctrinal purity, but then we could treat people like crap. And it was just a weird situation. So anyways, I posted this article and the response I got from it was pretty amazing. I had a ton of people private message me about it. So, so you have some questions. Yeah. Um, is this related to Calvinism? Kimball wants to know. Yes. Uh, Reformed theology is another term for Calvinism. And uh, these are the people, the stream of Christianity that comes out of the Reformation and believes in the great doctrines of predestination and grace and perseverance of the saints and all of those things. So people in this stream um, would be Michael Horton, Kim Riddlebarger, uh, Robert Godfrey. Uh, those are all Westminster, California people. Um People also in this stream in the Presbyterian Church in America that people might know that is reformed is R.C. Sproul. Uh, he was not part of the California thing, but um, yeah, the, those would be kind of the three big names at the California Seminary. Um, and so. then um, Juad wants to know, do you baptize your kids in the Reformed Baptist Church? He says you do not baptize your kids in the Re in the Reformed Baptist churches, right? Well, I Yes, Juwad, that's a very perceptive question. So among Reformed Christians, there is one stream that are Presbyterian or what we call Reformed or Dutch Reformed. They baptize their children. 
Then there's another stream of reformed Christians that come that broke away from them and they believe in what's called believers baptism and they hold to a different confession i think it's 1689 and if you've ever heard of a man named Charles Spurgeon he was a reformed baptist and adhered to the 1689 baptist confession and from the reformed baptist tradition is where you eventually end up with southern baptists oh so many southern baptists are Quasi reformed. Okay. And so if you're in a reformed Presbyterian, Orthodox Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church in America, those all baptize infants. And that is the, the more of the ancient faith uh, way of doing it. If you're a reformed Baptist and you hold to the Baptist Confession of 1689, then you believe in believers' baptism. They do not baptize babies. You have to have a confession of of faith in order to uh, be baptized. It's a very good question. I really want to know how Juad knows so much Christian theology. He knows, um, he knows, he knows quite a lot. Let's see. Suzanne, Susanna. Yes. Um, says I went to a church that talked out of two sides of their mouth. Grace works. Mm. Yeah. It's sort of like um. that, Susanna, you, you might uh, enjoy the article. Uh, if you go Google the title, uh, you can find it really easy. I think it was on medium.com is where it was published. But uh, the it, it it was such a a refreshment to my husband and I when we first were getting into the Reformed tradition because of all the talk about grace and the, the doctrines of grace. But then when you get into the culture, it was very oppressive and, and works-oriented. So And then uh, Kimba says they don't believe in miracles for today. Are they cessational? They tend to be fairly sensation, uh, cessationist. Um, however, that, means what? Uh, that miracles are really not for today. They, they, they would often make fun of evangelicals who believed in miracles. They would often make fun of charismatics. However, comma, when you get more in the Baptist, Southern Baptist tradition of the Reformed Baptists, some of them are a little bit more open to miracles but by and large, the Reformed people tend toward the cessationist end of the spectrum. Uh, Juwad says predestination means God elected his people from the beginning, right? Um, Yes. And um, so this brings me to the, the thing that everyone wanted to know about, because in my post, I made a little side comment of I'm no longer Reformed, <laughs> but I left the Reformed tradition, but I stayed Reformed in my theology for many years after I left the Reformed tradition. I just didn't want to be in those unhealthy. Un, I didn't want, we didn't want to raise our kids in those unhealthy churches. And so we left the Reformed tradition. But my husband and I were still both, by and large, Reformed in our theology. But about five years ago, we migrated away from Reformed theology. Uh <laughs> Because, well, I guess there were two things um, for me. Anyways, I won't speak for my husband, but uh, one of the things was that I experienced a dramatic miracle. Um, I got healed from bipolar disorder. And through that process, I began to question many of the core tenets of Reformed theology. And it kind of set me down a path of, needing to rethink things related to miracles. And 
Then the second thing that happened to me is that I began investigating more ancient faith traditions and the charismatic tradition more. So then I eventually left Reformed theology altogether because I just, I'm not as convinced anymore that God does predestine people in the way that the Reformed people conceive it. Um, I have been more persuaded of other points of view. So um, I think that, uh, but you are right, Juwad, Reformed people do believe that predestination, their version of predestination is that God elected his people from the beginning. So they would say before the foundations of the world, God God elected certain people unto salvation and certain people unto damnation. And that free will, what we call free will or choice, does not enter into it. Um, I'm no longer persuaded that that's actually what the Bible teaches. So, so yeah, I was going to say, we need to do a whole video on this then. Because <laughs> where does free will set in with this and how does all well, that work? And we don't have time for all that today. No, but we really don't. That's, but, but people wanted to know, why did you leave the Reformed, Reformed Church? Well, that's why I just I I just became skeptical that predestination and the way that the reform people conceive it, uh, was accurate. And I just am not persuaded that, um, I don't like the term free will because it's a very technical philosophical idea, but I do think that God calls us to make a declaration of faith and that we must, um, push into that and that we must mortify our flesh and that we must, exert our will in doing that. Um, so anyways, that hopefully that helps people un- understand uh, why I left. All right. Our Ju- friend Juwad says, to be honest with you, predestination spoils the free will doctrine. It makes Christianity counter to Islam and Judaism. Well, I would say that not all Christians, I want you to be clear, Juwad, that not all Christians believe in this type of free- predestination. It is one stream of Christianity. Just as you have an Islam, you have different streams of Islam with with slightly different emphases in Christianity. We also have different streams with different emphases. And I just left one this one stream of Christianity uh, because I was just no longer convinced of predestination for um, probably for some of the reasons that you're talking about. So anyways... Um, Let's see. Oh, Laura Hartley says predestination and free will could be a whole show in itself. Oh, I I just said that (laughs) we are like twins. That's all I'm going to say. I don't know. Do I want to do that show? I hate that topic. Yes, (laughs) we will be doing that show. Nobody wants to know. Yes, yes, yes. Come with all your questions because I will come with mine because hello, people. I am. Bring Mike Mike on. You can talk about it. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, we will. I think that's a show that needs to happen because I need to learn too. Um, Annette says predestination doesn't mean that God only chooses certain people to go to heaven. It means we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, that's actually not completely true. Annette, um, if you read R.C. Sproul's classic book, Chosen by God, um, he argues very clearly in that book that the, the standard reform view is that God predestines some to unto salvation and others to damnation. It is a double predestination. Now, Yes, we are also predestined unto good works. That's true, but it is it 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 does mean that God actively chooses 
Psalm, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That is one of their favorite passages in Romans chapter 9. And I sat through hundreds of sermons about that um, when I was reformed. So but I'm not, I wonder if she, I don't know if she's arguing from the, from that stance or if she's just saying that predestination doesn't mean that God only chooses certain people. Like, I don't know that, and, and that you can say, I don't, are you saying that she, are you thinking that she's saying that like, um, that the reform position isn't? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, you don't think I didn't well, read that in that. Here's the limitation of text. Yes. I'm like, ah, what are you saying? Have grace. Yes. But I would say that the standard reformed understanding of predestination is, it's a double predestination. Mm-hmm. Some unto salvation, some under unto damnation. Now, some reform don't want to go so far as to say God predestines some to damnation. He just overlooks them. So it's sort of a more of a, overlooks pa- them. it's a more of a passive predestination, but anyways, so there's that. Okay, so hopefully that gets people over their curiosity of why I left Reformed Theology. So what's my perspective now? I did have somebody ask me that yesterday privately. I have a whole note on my Facebook page about my denominational point of view. Um, I call myself a a kind of a charismatic Anglican. Uh, I really like ancient faith traditions. I've come to appreciate the ancient faith perspective. But there's some aspects of the charismatic tradition that I like, not the excesses, but there's some parts of it that I think are helpful and useful. But I like to also share my faith actively in like an evangelical. I think that witnessing to people is very important. I don't think that we should advocate a theology that people are merely born into it. And it's merely a culture we need to go out and actively share our faith. So I'm trying to straddle all three streams of Christianity. Ancient faith, charismatic, and evangelical. That's kind of where I come from. So that's what you're going to get from me. Yes, and that says I disagree with Reformed theology. Um, James White. I do too. Is a strong (laughs) proponent to to predestination. Do you know him? Uh, uh, Juwad. Now the fact. See, I'm I'm a little skeptical that you're a Muslim if you're you're listening to James White videos. Like you, you know, I mean, we listen to other things that we don't necessarily, but I couldn't, I couldn't name for you like a a major Muslim scholar other than Maurice Bukai. Uh, but, uh, you're right. James White is a, what is called a, I like you what, cause he just, he come with it. He knows, he knows some things. He's a man of information. get you going. So James White is what we would call reformed Baptist. So he would be in the stream of the 1689 confession and Charles Spurgeon. I do not know Dr. White. Um, we did a clip about him from his show several weeks ago. If you want to go back in the archives, we did play a, a show from James White. He's sort of a, um, uh, he's an interesting personality. His scholarship is generally sound. I just don't agree with him on this issue. Uh, there's a lot of issues I appreciate James White about. I, he, he largely teaches, um, the, I, what I would say is the, the historic Christian position. I just don't agree with him about reformed theology or predestination. It's just, I, I take a more ancient faith approach to that issue. All right. So, and you know what? I'm going to keep us moving on. Okay. Because time is of the essence. People. I can't believe we've been like yeah, jammering. It's for this time long. for it's, it's, right. it's time for us to go on. Um, the tweet of the week. Yes. Let's do it. Chris 
Christmas edition. Yes, I love this. This is my favorite one. Yeah, mine too. I love it. Okay, uh, I made a, I saw a tweet this week from a guy. I have no idea who he is. For all I know, he's an atheist, but I don't think so. I didn't vet him or anything. But he just had this tweet, unpopular take. Small groups tend to create as many problems as they supposedly solved and are vastly overrated by contemporary churches. And so I had posted this on Facebook this week because I've I've thought about the small group phenomenon. This is something that we've been in this trend of how to do church and doing it through small groups now for 15, 20 years. And I really wish somebody would do a study on what the fruit of that is. Like, how has that shaped the church? What changes have happened? And because I have a I have a theory about it. But I asked people, I asked our viewers for some takes. So we're going to read a few of those takes here. We've uh, one viewer. I think his name is Daryl. Daryl, yes. Okay, before we even start, let me tell you about good old Daryl Keith Middlebrook. Oh, you okay. know this guy? Yes. Oh. If man, without Daryl and Aunt Dorothy, they, they go back to my teenage years. Oh. Yes. I would okay. not have made it through teenagehood without Daryl Keith Middlebrook and um Aunt Dorothy. And then there was another family. And, oh, this is good to know. In, in our church, and we're glad he's here. Yes, they definitely, definitely kept me from losing all of my teenagehood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they did some good things in your life. They yes, some, he's a very some, good man. Some good seats, and here you are today. Yes. All right. He said valid point, which can be used, uh, and his valid point was, um. Uh, I think it was in response to Bob's post, but which we'll get to in a minute, a minute, which can be used for any uh, grouping of human beings, study groups, exercise groups, corporate ideas groups, not just church groups. Structure, discipline and prep make for effective and positive groupings. Tossing a bunch of lightly knowledgeable people in a room with a study guide, well, may not get the same results. I would just like to echo an amen mm-hmm. about this yes. take because... This is my theory. I I really honestly wish somebody would do a study on the impact of the rise of small group dynamics in the church and whether there's any correlation to the lowering of biblical literacy. Because I feel like what we've done is we've made a lot of these groups and people like, I'm not sure people are properly trained to have these conversations. And what are the purpose of the groups? And are they just lightly trained? Are they trained at all? Mm-hmm. You know, what what is the what is the outcome of these groups? Uh, let's go to another take here. This one is from my husband, who I'm always glad to hear when he uh, shows up for a conversation. It says, I guess education is inferred. Uh, Steve doesn't really clarify. That's the tweeter. Seems like he's only saying small groups bad. For me, I've really enjoyed and benefit from the small group of my church. Can I find something negative about it? Sure. If you put in enough effort, hard work, and are truly dedicated, you can find something negative about anything. And this is why I married this man. He is the most, he, I love his perspective because I'll have a, I'll have this all like super complicated take and then he'll come along and he'll just be like, well, this is how I see it. And I'm like, wow, that really makes me think. I like that because- I think you're right. Like if we just had 
What? Oh, Monique's. Yes, I wrote a note, people. Yes. All right. She's telling me to be quiet. Yes. All not, right. not, not in so many words. I said, we need to wrap up. Right. <laughs> Since you put it out there for the dark web to hear. Yes. Well, Sorry. I want to talk about small groups. You guys. It, All right. I, I love and appreciate everyone here. Right. I do, but right. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about small groups. I just I think we do... should also be respectful of everyone's okay. time. All right. And that that's all I'm saying. I, I think we should finish. I'm not, okay. I wasn't trying to cut you off, <laughs> but since you put it out there, I'm going to be honest with what I said. All right. So anyways, yes, that's, need to hurry. those are my thoughts about small groups. <laughs> so we'll just leave it right there. Um, too often small groups are nothing more than opinion round tables. Mm. You know. See, this is what Jeremy. I'm saying. I can, uh, Jeremy, I, I can feel you on that one. And Annette says, Juwad, you should listen to Andy Wood's videos. He used to be Calvinist, but is no longer. He's an amazing Bible teacher. If you're in a mega or semi-mega church, you get to know no one. My church is small, so eventually you know most people. Yeah. And I think that that sort of was the the genesis of the small group model was a lot of these mega churches and they're like, how are people going to know each other? Well, let's break them into small groups, mm-hmm. and which I think is fine in principle, but I'm just wondering about the training, like, and what impact this has because I agree with the comment about they're often nothing more than opinion roundtables. I agree with that, and I'm not sure that that's actually helping to grow and develop anyone's you know, knowledge of scripture, their spiritual life, um, what's happening in small groups. I I think there's some pros and cons about the small group model. My hope is that eventually this trend will wane and Mm. we'll go to something else. um, I think if uh, if you're getting in the scripture, something good is going to happen because God says, my word doesn't return to me void. So people are, you don't know what's going on in people's hearts. Yeah. You're starting to read through scripture. But so many of them don't even open their Bibles. They just talk. Well, what do they? That's true. But uh, all the small groups I go to, we're reading the Bible and and we're we're talking about what it means and thoughts and comments. about. What what about the intergenerational component? This is another one of my concerns is that so often the small groups are divided in according to like season of life. So you get all these people in the same season together. You know, what about the intergenerational component that? You know, where's the wisdom of the older generation speaking into the younger generations? Well, in the men's group I'm at, we got quite a variety of ages in our group. So yeah. um, that, that's always good. I love, we love to hear different people. So um, but I think as long as you're getting into the word and you're talking about and discussing about it, thinking about it, um, these are seeds being planted in your heart so that it could, God's going to use something with it. So Yeah, I would really like to see some small groups. Um, talk more about scripture. I mean, there's a lot of small groups that they read books about the Bible, but mm-hmm. the, or they watch videos about the Bible, but a lot of times they don't actually read or dive into that much of scripture. And so I don't know, pros and cons. This is some of my thoughts and concerns about small groups. Yeah, I um, I'm I haven't been the biggest fan. I always get put in the single people's group and then i, I thought you were beg. gonna say i always get put in the black people's group <laughs> no <laughs> that is funny um i always get put in the single people's group and it just annoys the mess out of me because most single people 
are a lot younger than I am. Yeah. And then like people are always, it always comes up. Hey, so I have a question about writing my resume because like, they're just going to graduate college soon. And I, <laughs> You know, and I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of past this stage. Um, I would like to talk about something other than, you know, my singleness, even though, you know, that's something that can come up. But like, why can't I discuss that in a circle of married people or, you know, I just I don't like that churches, in my experience, tend to categorize people based on what they think their needs are instead of being like, hey, let's put people in here, just get in this group and people will kind of opt out or switch groups and, you know, do what they need to do for themselves. But that's exactly my point about the intergenerational thing. It's like, why do we have to group people together according to their life stage? Mm -hmm. That, which is often how it's done. Yeah. Now Bob's group, the men's group that he's in, it's not like that, but oftentimes it is like that. And can I join I, a man's group? No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing, y'all. Don't, don't play. I am still a work in progress. Need, Praise him. Monique needs a husband. She wants to join the men's group. <laughs> Sorry, folks. All right. Okay. We're going to end. Um, yes, yes, yes. Susanna says, yeah, she said something about me. Um, yes, and divided by marital status. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. We're going to end. <laughs> we are going to end. they should be be required to open their bible yes they should yes they should we agree all right all right my friends sorry it's so long tonight we just we were just clowning around yeah enjoying the time having fun hope you enjoyed it too yes Yes. and we we want to let everyone know to make sure to share the show and i'll post uh throughout the week some shorter clips from the show but uh like follow share um really that's the best way you can help us get the word out about the show and also follow us like our new um facebook page all the things facebook page all the things show yes all right you guys thank you so much and we will see you next week merry christmas everyone we'll see them before christmas right sure i think we will yes the 21st god willing yes we will see you before christmas i'm still wishing you a merry christmas (laughs) okay bye (laughs) 